brother. And again, Paul is all about Jesus. That's his master passion. One person. Whatever he's about, whatever he's done, whatever he's doing, that's what Paul's about. Well, I mentioned we would look at two men. Let's go to 1 Kings. Is that where I said to go? 1 Kings 18, and we'll pick up around verse 17. Now, this is the context. This is Elijah's master passion. And we're going to see that this really is the heart of the Lord. The heart of the Lord. By the way, I didn't share it. YWAM, are you familiar with them? Youth with a Mission? I think it's to know Him and to make Him known. I don't think you could get it any clearer or any simpler if you had to say in a sentence what life is about. To know Him and to make Him known. The problem, of course, He's invisible. Have you noticed that? We grasp for Him and we grope for Him and, and we want to sense Him and, and sometimes we do and other times we're like, Lord, where are you? I feel so alone, so alienated, so afraid. Listen, we had a little guy in the church. His name's Jeremiah. He's starting to grow up now so he'll be embarrassed someday by these stories. But he came bouncing into church one day and he's like, marshmallow makes me dance. Marshmallow makes me dance. And you got a picture, he's like seven or eight years old and he's dancing. My daughter-in-law is helping with the Sunday school at the time and she's like, man, maybe they shouldn't be giving him marshmallows on the way to church. Although we're not completely opposed to happiness at church. Well, the next week he comes in and he's just dragging his heads down. He's all bummed out and, and she's like, what's the matter, Jeremiah? And he says, man, my folks wouldn't let me bring, wouldn't let me bring Marshmallow to church. And she's like, oh, Marshmallow's a friend? Oh, yeah, Marshmallow's my invisible friend. And so she thought about it for a couple minutes. And then she's like, well, and she's an adult, so she thinks like us. She's like, well, is Marshmallow white? Is that why you call him Marshmallow? He goes, how would I know? He's invisible. Anyway, the point is this. We don't know what God looks like. He's invisible. But if you've seen Jesus, if you've read Him, if you've heard Him, if you've seen Him at work, you know the heart of the Lord. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not saying, I am the Father. He's just saying, we're so close. And we're so identical and we are so one that if you see me, you see him. If you hear me, you hear him. If you know what I'm about, you know what he's about. So we never have to fear the Father because we know Jesus didn't come to destroy but to save. He loves and he loves unconditionally. Well, that brings us to Elijah. You're there. 450 prophets of Baal. It's an open book test so you can get this right. How many other prophets were there at the, the well, we'll call it a God-off. They're having a contest and they say, let's figure out who God is. And if your God is God, we'll serve him. And if our God is God, why don't we serve him? Why don't we serve him? If Baal's God, okay. But if God is God. So there's 450 prophets of Baal. How many other prophets are there at this thing? No, no, no. There's 
400, believe it or not. 400 prophets of Asherah. It's right in the passage. And so what happens is we always talk about the first 450. I'm not saying that so that you'll be like, oh, I got something right or I got something wrong. Just to say, if we read it, we're going to see it. No, the context is this. Ahab, worst king ever in the divided kingdom. You know, after the kingdom was divided, the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, some of them were good, some of them were great, some of them were horrible. But in the northern kingdom, they were all bad. There was not one good king during that entire time of the divided kingdom. But Ahab was the worst of the worst. He's the one who marries Jezebel. Man, anyway, this this couple, unbelievable. Well, Ahab blames Elijah for the problems that are taking place in the kingdom. And Elijah's like, no, it's all really on you. And then Elijah commands Ahab to gather all the people together and bring the prophets of Baal and bring the prophets of Asherah and they would have this contest. So we pick up in verse 20. Ahab sent for all the children of Israel. He gathered the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. This makes sense to me. If God's God, if he's the Lord, well, we should follow him. We should obey him. But the people answered him not a word. And Elijah said to the people, I am alone. I'm left a prophet of the Lord, and Baal's prophets are 450 men. It's called an Elijah complex. What's the complex? I'm the only faithful one. If you've taught Sunday school, you know how he felt. I'm the only one. They put me in here, and then the kids are all over, and where's the help? Where's the encouragement? If you pay the bills, you're like, I'm the only faithful tither. What happened to the rest? Where are they? And so here's the point. We can get like that. By the way, it's called an Elijah complex, not because he does it here. He does it later. And after this great battle, which we're going to consider in a moment, and for only a moment, he hears that this gal Jezebel's after him. Now, he's not as scared of 450 prophets, but he's scared to death of one woman. And there's some wisdom there. But the bottom line is... He runs and he hides and he's in a cave and he's just weeping and saying, Lord, I'm all alone and I'm the only one and, and, and nobody else. And God's like, I have 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Is that awesome? We're like, I'm the only one. He's got 7,000 just like you. Well, I don't know any of them. So what? The point is we're never alone in this thing. We're never alone. God has his people everywhere. When Paul goes to Corinth, he was freaking out and afraid. And God says, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. And I'm sure Paul's thinking, well, could you introduce me to a few of them? Because I haven't met them. But he was about to, you see. Well, in any case, these guys, Elijah says, well, listen, here's, here's the contest rules. Very simple. We're going we're gonna to build an altar. We're going to offer a sacrifice. And we're going to wait on the Lord. You can wait on your God, Baal. And I'm going to wait on my God. And whoever answers by fire, he's God. I like that. Simple rules. Everybody can understand them. And Elijah graciously lets them go first. 
And so uh, this leads to a long day, all day long of crying and weeping and shouting and cutting themselves and doing all this stuff. And Elijah actually gets into mocking in the middle of it all. Some of you have read it. You're familiar with it. He's like, hey, maybe you need to shout louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's on vacation. Some of the translations suggest he might be on the pot, the john, something like that. In any case, I don't know that those are the best translations, but I can't help but enjoy them anyway. Well, there was no voice. It says it twice. There was no voice. There was no answer. No one paid attention. The reason is simple. Well, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, they both say it. The gods of the heathen, silver and gold. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They got feet, but they can't walk. They don't answer because they don't exist. And let me just suggest, I know you're not idol makers. You're not at home like fashioning a little Buddha or fashioning a little something and you're putting it there. I hope you're not doing that. But, but if you are, you need to straighten that out today and we can talk about it. But, but we're not making idols. Now, this, I know, I realize here in the UK, it's mass transit. Some of you have really nice cars. Some of you don't have a car at all, like my brother Tony. In California, everybody has two cars. You have the car you're driving and the car you're going to drive when that breaks down because you can't get anywhere without a car. But people actually have idols in the garage and they open that garage and da-da, and there it is. You know, 65 Volkswagen or whatever it is. In any case... If your God is something you fashioned and formed, it's not God. And, and here's the thing. Here's the, the simple test. If there's a fire and you've got to carry your God out, it's not rescuing you and never will. You want a God that can carry you. You want a God that can deliver you. You want a God that can rescue you. That's the God we all need, you see. Well, anyway, they do their thing and then Elijah gathers the people and he repairs, it says, the altar of the Lord. And I realize I'm kind of jumping ahead. We're going to end up in verse 36 here in a minute because I want to get to David too. But he builds the altar, he takes the wood, he offers a sacrifice and he says, just in case, fill these water pots with water. Three times they fill four great water pots and they drench the sacrifice, the wood, it runs all over the altar. It runs down into this little area around it. So, so he wants to make real clear that, hey, this is really the Lord. This isn't going to be some spontaneous combustion and they're going to say, oh, you know, scientifically this could actually have happened. No, this is going to be the Lord. And then here's the prayer. And here's his master passion. It's chapter 18, verse 36. Listen to the prayer. Read it with me. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant and that I've done all these things. It's your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Here's Elijah's master passion. He's willing to stand up to 450 false prophets, willing to stand up to the king who really had a hit out on him at one point and whose wife would be after him after all of this. 
But he's saying, Lord, I want them to know that you're God. You're God. You're God in Israel. And, and I'm just representing you. And, and Lord, I want them to know you're the Lord God. And this is tragic, if you think about it, that you've turned their hearts back to you. It's tragic and hopeful. Tragic in that it had to happen. That God's own people needed evidence that he was God. But the wonder of it is that God's doing it. He's saying, okay, how sad it's necessary, but how wonderful he answers. Then the fire of the Lord, verse 38, fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. When we see God's passion, that we know him and make him known, this will be the outcome. The Lord is God. We'll say it and others will see it. We'll say it and others will recognize and believe it. By the way, this is the same ministry of John the Baptist. You know he came in the wilderness saying one word, repent. And he said it to Herod, ultimately leading to the loss of his own head. But he said it to the the soldiers. He said it to the commoners. He said it to the religious leaders. Didn't matter who you were. And by the way, if you're having a party and John shows up, you're going to go, oh man, no, I love John, but don't have him to the party. Why? Because people are going to go, hey, how you doing? My name's Joe. And he's going to go, what's yours? And he's going to go, repent. And because that's just, that, he only had one thing to say. Oh, there was one other. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you love that? He calls them to repent. And then he tells them, this is why. He's why. I'm here to point you to the one who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that brings us to our second passage, 1 Samuel 17, if you'll get over there with me. And I'll give you the background. David, we know him. He was a shepherd. He was a worshiper. He was an obedient son. But no one would have guessed he was a king in training. And I love his story and, and for so many reasons, but here's one. I look at you guys and the people who know you best have the least expectation of you. Do you realize that? The, the, I meet you and I think God could do anything with you. But the people who've known you your whole life, they're like, oh, I don't know. I think God can do anything, but I'm not sure he'll do it with my brother or with my sister or with my wife or my husband or my children or my parents. Why? We know him so well. We can get skeptical. We believe God can do anything, but not necessarily with them. Or maybe you feel that way about yourself. Maybe you know what God can do, but you think, he gave me some opportunity, I blew it, and he's done with me. If that were true, Peter would have never succeeded. If that were true, James and John would have never succeeded. If that were true, David or Elijah. No one God used was someone special until God used them. That's what made them special. That's what set them apart. And so I look at you and I have great expectations. I believe you could be a king, a queen in training. That, that God could be making a mighty warrior out of you. 
You might be like Gideon and God shows up. You remember? God shows up and, and he's like, oh, mighty man of valor. And he's like, hmm? You talking to me? Why? Because he couldn't see himself that way. He was hiding in a wine press. It's a story. We don't have time for it. But the point is, God sees what will be. We can only see what is. And sometimes what's been obscures even our vision of what's possible. With God, all things are possible. Anything can happen in your life and through your life. Well, listen. Long before David is king of Israel... He's just taking care of his father's sheep. And it's an interesting study. I encourage you to do it sometime. Trace through, see how many people God chose to use in mighty ways that were simple shepherds. Because you would think, well, how would shepherding prepare me for royalty or prepare me for battle or prepare me? God always knows what he's doing. So David's a simple shepherd Long before he becomes king. And long before he's a king, he's a giant slayer. You know that, right? We know, and you ask any kid, hey, you know about David? Yeah, David and Goliath. You ask adult, you know about David? He goes, yeah, David and Bathsheba. And it's unfortunate that, that you know, people can know us for our best, but often know us for our worst. But you know what God says of David? He was a man after his own heart. Talk about a master passion. I just want the heart of God. I just want God. I want to know him. He's like Paul. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Do you know that David was the original Ghostbusters? Was that movie popular over here? I realize many of you are younger, but do you remember Ghostbusters? He was that. Saul was troubled by, by demon spirits and, and David would play the harp and the, the spirits would leave. But he was more than that. He was a military leader. And after faithfully leading the armies of King Saul, he was a hunted and wanted man. Tony and I twice in the last four years, have made it over to Israel together. I've been there many times. He many more times than me. But we go up to En Gedi where David would hide out. Beautiful waterfalls, glorious area, and lots of escape time because it takes a long time to climb up there, especially with a bunch of armor like Saul's guys would have had. But, but David knew what it was to, to be faithful and watch over the sheep, and he knew what it was to stand up to the enemy and well, it brings us to the story. It's in 1 Samuel 17. And again, there's two, two nations. They're gathered in the valley of Elah, we're told. And one army's on one side and one army's on the other side. And they decide to do... They, I like that they always lay out their rules. The British were, were like that. I, I've done a lot of study of history. And, and there was a, a way you did things. And, and you, you marched and people held rank. And, and so the rules for this fight is, well, we're going to send out our guy and you send out your guy. And much like Elijah's, like whoever's God is God, let's worship him. He's saying, if our guy does in your guy, then you serve us. And if your guy can take out our guy, well, then we'll serve you. Now, it doesn't end up that anyone's going to serve anyone. One side's going to win and one side's going to lose. One side's going to live and one side's going to die. 
But the nations are gathered there. Goliath's from Gath. He's, he's the Philistines champion. He's over nine feet tall and he's packing heavy artillery of the day. And then, well, the plan again. Send someone out. If he kills me, then, you know, we'll serve you. Verse 11, that's where we'll pick up. And we're going to, I'm not going to read you every verse. I'm going to walk you through some. We're going to read some because we want to get to the heart of it and the, the, the passion that we see in him. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard his words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. His words, he's, he was out there trash talking the armies of Israel and disrespecting the God of the armies of Israel. And so, in, in verse 11, it just said, they were dismayed. Why? They're looking at him, they're looking at themselves, and they're just thinking, there's no way. It's like when the children of Israel try to pass into the promised land. They send in some spies, 12 come back, 10 with a bad report, 2 with a good report. You know them, Joshua and Caleb. They're the two that actually will enter into the promised land. The rest of that generation will die in the wilderness because they said... We can never do it. I mean, it's high-walled cities. They're like giants, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. No, they were like grasshoppers in their own sight. They were looking at themselves, and they were looking at the enemy, and they were saying, no way. And Joshua and Caleb are like, wait, God said he would drive them out. God said to take the land. God said, let's go inherit our inheritance. That's really what's happening here. They're looking at this giant. And they're just saying, there's no way. Now, David, the youngest of eight brothers, three of the brothers are in the military. They're serving in Saul's army, and they're at the front. His dad, David's dad, their dad, sends David with some supplies, wants to check up on the boys, see how the battle's going, see what news is happening. And so in verse 20, the latter part, David arrives as the army is going out, and look at it, look at it. It says, we're going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. I'm not sure about this language, but I read that, and it seems like there are a couple words that don't belong, like the word the. It doesn't say they were going out to fight. They were going out to the fight. What does that mean? They're not going to fight. And the other thing is, they're just shouting for a battle. There's not going to be a battle, they're just shouting. So, one side's trash-talking and the other side's trash-talking back. There's no actual battle. And this has been going on for 40 days. Now, when David shows up, he greets his brothers and Goliath shouts out, Fee, fi, fo, fo, oh wait, no, that's the wrong giant. You remember him, though. Yeah. No, he's just saying, he's shouting out. It made me think of something else, though, the fee-fi-fo. You remember Mike Tyson? Man, what a boxer. But he could not talk. I mean, he's like, call me. Fee-fi-fo-fo-fi-fee-five. And it's like, I remember saying, he hits so hard. It's like, anyway... I liked him. He was, he was a great boxer and serious entertainment after the fight. But listen, verse 24 says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And in verse 26, 
Here's David. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now he's rebuked by his brothers. He's received by Saul. David offers to fight Goliath. And Saul looks at David and says, hey, he's a soldier, you're a kid. There's no way you take him on. There's no way you can do this. And we get a sneak peek into David's trophy room in verse 34. So again, I realize I'm jumping ahead and I apologize for that. But if I read, it's over 50 verses. I know my brother does that somehow. But for me and for today... Verse 34, here's David's trophy room, and I'll talk about what that means in a moment. David says to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Check this out. I call it David's trophy room because I think it's, it's something we all need to have. And that's that, that place when we're faced with a real trial, a real problem. We can go back and say, okay, the lion came and I, I took him on. The, and he says it. First he says, I dealt with him. Then he says, the Lord delivered me from him. The bear came and the Lord delivered me from him. There haven't been any lions or bears in my life, but I have had some real trials. And I got to tell you, everyone... I went into it thinking, Lord, please don't let that happen. And oftentimes, he did. And I'm like, Lord, why? And the longer I've lived and the more I've walked with him, I've learned this. The things he brings into my life or allows into my life, he does for my good. He wants to show me he's with me, he's for me, and that nothing is too hard for our Lord. Nothing. All things are working together for good. He says so. Why? Because we're his chosen. We love him. We're called according to his purposes. So, so if you'll build that little, and we do it different ways. Trophy room. I don't have any literal trophy room, but, but I have memories. I'm realizing I should be writing this stuff down soon because they're not what they once were. Well, the memories are the same. I just don't have access to them all. It's like files and the, the, the hard drive's corrupted or something. But, but here's, here's what I want to say is, is if, you, if you're a note taker and you jot stuff, if you keep a diary, start writing down the difficult things, the, the things that you're afraid of and, and just write it down. If you're praying, God, I'm so scared and I don't know what I'm going to do, write it down. And when he comes through, you take it on that same page or on the next page and say, but here's what the Lord did. And then when it's a giant, you're like, hey, the Lord delivers from the lion, delivery from the bear. What's the difference with this giant? There's something else. Saul clothes David at this point in his armor. And, and you've got to appreciate that. Saul's like, okay, there's no way you're going to survive, but at least I can armor you up, right? Because 
Because Goliath is just decked out. He not only has all the latest armor and all the latest weapons, he has a guy that goes before him with a, with a, a shield. So it's really two against one. Just the shield bearer probably would have been threatening. But, but you have this giant. So, so Saul clothes David, verse 38, with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword with his armor and tried to walk. I like that. He tried to walk. He puts on Saul's army, if armor, not his army, but yeah. He puts on the armor, and if you remember, Saul was a head taller than everyone else. David's still a kid. So, so he puts this stuff on, and there's just, he can't even walk in it. That's going to be a problem in the battle, you see. And if he needs to get away, decides to run, well, or if he's going to, he is going to run, by the way. And in case I don't remember to read it, when the battle comes, David runs at the giant. Talking about having confidence in the Lord, I've yet to do that, i got to tell you, in all honesty. I still go into every trial with fear and trepidation. But I see David and I'm like, hey, I want to be like that. I want to be like David the giant killer. I want to do good in my latter years because I'm in them. I don't think it's about how young you are or how old you are or how much you've done or how little you've done. I think it's about the Lord and your passion being Him. So, anyway, David just says to Saul, I can't walk with these. I've not tested them. So David took them off. Now, in a minute, he's going to stand before Saul and he's going to appear to be unarmored, unprepared for battle. But do you know that Paul tells us in the latter part of Ephesians to put on the full armor of God. That's what David's wearing. That's what Elijah had on. He's armored up because he's he's protected by the Lord. He doesn't need a a helmet of bronze or, or weapons or shields or... He has the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. He, he's ready for battle. And i got to tell you something else about our armor. Few of us, now I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Some of you may actually have tailored clothes, but it doesn't appear so from here. And, uh, and you can tell looking at me, I certainly don't. These are right off the rack. And I mean the rack. Well, not the rack. It's, it's more Sears or pennies or something. But, but the point is, when God fashions your armor, it's tailor-made. It fits perfectly. It covers every part of you perfectly, with one exception, your back. There's no armor for your back. You know why? God never intends for you to run from the enemy. He says, having done all to stand, stand. And then, having stood your ground, then we take ground. Because we're supposed to be in, in an offensive mode, not an offensive mode, but an offensive mode as we take on the enemies of our soul. Well, David, verse 40, took his staff in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. He drew near to the Philistine, and the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. I underline that because I never saw it before. I mean, I'm sure I saw it, but for some reason, over 35 years of reading this, and I'm like, wow, he had another guy with him. And the Philistine looked about and saw David and disdained him. 
for he was a youth, ruddy and good-looking. Yeah, just another pretty face. Not ready for battle, no armor, no weapons, just a kid. And a handsome kid at that. Well, the Philistine says to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Sticks? Yeah, he had his rod. That's another detail. I'm not saying it's radically significant, but just rereading the story year after year after year, he took his staff in his hand. And he had his stones, and and maybe there's more to it, but for now it's just enough to say, hey, if I read it and I look at it and I'm fresh with it, I'm always seeing stuff that God's going to talk to me later about. Well, the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. It's more trash talk. It's still talk. But the battle's about to ensue. Years ago, I was walking downtown Chico. If you've never been anywhere like Chico, California, well, you perhaps have. It's a university town, but not like Cambridge or the wonderful universities that you guys have here. No, it's it's known as a super party school. And I realize college students party. I get that. But our, our, our town is known worldwide for being somewhere. If you want to party, that's the school for you. And we moved to that town as missionaries to Chico. Because we're like 20,000 university students. We were relatively young. We have a heart for the lost, for the young, as does my brother. So we wanted to be there. Anyway, one hot summer day, like here, it gets hot in the summer, 105 degrees or so. I'm walking downtown and I see this huge guy. I mean, he's no shirt, he's disheveled, his hair's all messed up, and he's walking like, he's like, raw is God, no joke. And he's walking right at me. I mean, I'm half a block away, but I see this guy and I'm freaking out. Raw is God. Well... I'm looking and I'm thinking, okay, should I cross the street? Should I duck in the store? Because the last thing I need to do is bump into this character. And he sees me. And the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. I share it with you because it actually fits the story. The guy looks at me and gets a look of terror on his face. And I'm like, now I've never seen that ever. You know, even my kids weren't afraid of me when they should have been. I'm just not intimidating. So he looks at me and he gets this confused and dazed and then kind of fearful look. And then he starts saying, raw food is good. Raw food is good. And I'm like, wasn't that raw is God? No, here's what happened. He decides he's going to fake me out because he recognizes me. And, 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 and I, I found out something that day. Well, no one has any reason to fear me at all. I'm with God and God's with me. And what he recognized is the Spirit of God. And I'm not saying I'm glowing or got the aura. Though if you put lights on me with this white hair, ooh, there's something. But but he went from Ra is God, and you know Ra is an Egyptian name for God. And he's all, and then he's like, raw food is good. So it's like, because he wanted to pretend he was never saying the first thing. And and, and I, I, I learned something, and I'm, I'm still 
tripping on it, that, that God can put the fear of you in someone, because it's really the fear of him. No one has any reason to fear me, but hey, I'd fear the Lord if I were you. And if you don't, I would. And I encourage you to. Well, anyway, here's the deal. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled or defied, excuse me. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines and the birds of the air and the wild beast of the earth. Pause with me for one second. This is not trash talk at all. This is the future. This is a guy saying, listen, you're about to die. You're about to lose your head. You are about to go down. Not because of who, who was standing before him. Because of the one who sent him. And listen, here's David's master passion. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Hey, that's the same thing. That Elijah wanted his people to know. David's got a broader vision. Elijah's like, I just want your own people to remember you, Lord. David's like, I want the whole world to know. I know you know that's my brother Tony's vision. That's why he left the States and came here. And why he came to Camden. Because there's so many people from all over the world gathered together. Many of you from different places. But in any case, I want all the earth to know there's a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know the Lord doesn't save with sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out the stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of the sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Man. Time for one more. You don't have to turn to this one. It's shorter and it will wrap things up and we'll worship together after a prayer and an opportunity. If you haven't surrendered your life to the one who made you and loves you and sent his son to lay down his life for you. Four men. It's recorded in multiple Gospels. They have a friend. He's a paralytic. And they get this idea. If we can just get our friend to Jesus, he could fix him. If we could just get our friend to Jesus, he could heal him. If we could get our friend to Jesus, he can make him whole. And I want you to be sure. If, if nothing else, if you know the Lord, and I'm sure most of you, if not all of you do, I want you to be sure if you can get your friend to Jesus, if you can get your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or yourself, if necessary, to Jesus, he can fix it. 
He can fix you. He can fix them. He can make them whole. So they go to the house. And so many people are surrounding it, they can't even get in. And they find their way up some stairs and they get on the roof. Roofs in Israel, flat. And, and they were, well, they were made out of kind of simple materials. You could actually take them apart and they started doing it. So here's the two pictures. There's these guys on the roof starting to take the roof apart. Down below, Jesus is sitting in this room, in this home, And there's all these religious leaders and all these people, the disciples and the people that want to hear them and the people that don't get along with those people and the people that are like, I can't believe they're here and I can't believe they're here. And here's what happens. All of a sudden, a little bit of dust from up above. And somebody's like, what's that? And then there's a little noise and then there's this little light and all of a sudden the roof is coming off, literally. That would be freaky if it was your house. But in any case, then they let the guy down right into the midst, it says. They're lowering their friend, who they at great personal, through great personal effort, have brought to Jesus and found a way to get him into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Two things happen. One, I can't, I can't verify from scripture. Because it doesn't say it. But let me say, it's okay once in a while, as long as you're not going somewhere you shouldn't, to say, if I were there, I'd be like, wait a minute, we didn't bring him for the forgiveness thing. He's crippled, Lord. He's paralyzed. We brought him for the healing thing. And sometimes we're lifting up our kids or we're lifting up our friends or we're lifting up our family to the Lord because we have a need that we can see their need. It's not... Imagined, it's real, but he has, he has something greater in mind than, oh Lord, please heal my mom, don't let her die, don't let her go. How many of us have prayed like that? And sometimes God heals and sometimes God, well, the ultimate healing, by the way, for a Christian is death. Why? You never suffer again. You pass into the presence of God, absent from the body, present with the Lord, this new perfected, not this one, the one I got coming, new perfected body that never aches and never It's weary or worn. Anyway, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious people, they're thinking, hey, that's blasphemous. The scribes, only God can forgive sin. Oh, how close they were. They were in the presence of God. They just missed that. They had it right. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, hey, What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise, take your bed and walk. I pondered this one a long time because it's a little bit strange of a question. It's actually easy to say either, but the, the idea here is this. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can tell if anything happened. But if you say to a paralytic, rise, take your bed and walk, and nothing happens, it's pretty clear you have no power. You're just... I don't know what would lead someone to do such a thing unless they were sure it was going to work. And Jesus says, but that you can know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. I say, rise, take your bed and walk. What's he saying? Does he have compassion for the guy? Absolutely. Did he intend to heal him? I'm absolutely certain he did. But he says there's something more important than his physical healing, and that's his spiritual restoration. Jesus came to 
lay down his life, to suffer and die, to bleed, that we could have a right relationship with his Father. Who sent him and so loves the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever lives, believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So he says, your sins are forgiven, because that's the most important thing to God. That's where it starts for all of us. And then he says, rise, take your bed and walk. And he says it saying that you can know. I want you to know the power I have. And someone who can do that, what's beyond him? What's too hard for the Lord? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. So we close with these thoughts. We are all created by and for the living God. He made you. He fashioned and formed you in the womb. It's said of Jeremiah, I know it's true for us as well. He said, before I formed you, I knew you. And then he fashions and he forms him. He sets him apart. He says, often he says, here's what you're going to name him and here's what I'm going to do through him and here's what's going to happen as a result. And so we're all going to live forever because God created us to live forever. But we're not going to all live forever in the presence of God. The wages of sin is death. Death means separation. James defines it as the separation of the body from the spirit. As the body without the spirit is dead. He says, so faith without works is dead. He's making another point. I'm making this one. That that the body without the spirit is dead. And well, a man who doesn't have spiritual life who isn't connected to God spiritually, is dead spiritually. That's the state of every person since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. We have to be born again, according to Jesus. And he says that birth isn't another physical thing, it's a spiritual one. That which is born of flesh is flesh, we've had that. That which is born of spirit is spirit, we need that. So if you've never given your life to the Lord, hear these words carefully. You will someday stand before God and you will either stand in the presence of your Lord and Savior and hear well done and enter in or you'll stand in the the presence of your judge who'll say, depart from me until the everlasting fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Heaven is real. Hell is real. We're all going to live somewhere forever. And it's just like they say in real estate, location, location, location. You want to make sure that you know where you're going to spend eternity. So, Lord, thank you for these sweet brothers and sisters. And, Lord, I, I know that we're all tempted daily. Oh, not to gross immorality or horrific idolatry. Although some may be struggling with that today. But we're tempted to get caught up in the the hustle and bustle, the I gotta get this or I gotta be that or I have to accomplish this or I need this stuff or that position or that promotion. Lord, our passion can become something that's no different than the passion of the people around us. And once that happens, we're no good to them. We're no use. Oh Lord, we can pray for them and we care about them. But when they see no difference in us, what would cause them to to yearn for you, to, to crave you, to reach out for you? Lord, we know your master passion must become our master passion. 
And so I pray for my brothers and sisters that that will be what we dwell on this week, that that will be what you continue to to speak to me and and that I'll be yielded and, and faithful. And I pray that for all who know you. And Lord, for any who are suffering or struggling and and resisting or running, rebelling, confused, just bring that clarity, Lord, that confession of sin brings cleansing and forgiveness and restoration. If we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, if there'd be even one person today And I remember the day I surrendered my life to you. I was the only one who answered that invitation. While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, every Christian praying, if you're here and you've never said, Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior, forgive my every sin, I want to give you that opportunity right now. And listen, he, Jesus, said you must be born again. You must take this step of faith. You must pray the prayer of faith. And it's not the the words or that you're doing it with me or you're doing it here. It's about a heart that says yes to Jesus. And if you need to do that today and you've never done it, I want to give you that opportunity. I ask you to raise your hand and hold it high. You do that, you're just saying, Pastor Sam, pray for me. I want to surrender to the Lord. I know he loves me. I know he made me. I want to give my life to him because he gave his life for me. Any one of you right now, if you need to pray that prayer, I'll do do it. Yield. Surrender. Don't run another moment from the Lord. Anyone this hour. Lord, you know us. You know the struggles that we go through. You know... We know, Lord, every one of us who surrender to you, the battle that goes on inside, all that self-talk, Lord, all, all the, the, the things that go through our heart and mind. Will I be able to do it? Will I be strong enough? Will I be faithful? Lord, show them. You begin the good work. You're faithful to complete it. And I pray for any and all who've never said yes, that you remember these words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus prayed them for you. And if you'll pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, well, that'll be sufficient. You believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. You confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So if you're not going to do it now, please do it. And please cry out to him and know he'll answer. In Jesus' name, amen.